This episode of the Disney Film Project is sponsored by touringplans.com. Head over to touringplans.com and use their tools to save yourself time and money when you are at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. You can use the Lines application on your mobile phone, use the crowd calendar to figure out which parks to hit which days, or use the touring plans to save time and money waiting in line. Touringplans.com is the sponsor of this episode of the Disney Film Project. Welcome again, everybody, to the Disney Film Project podcast. It's us, your friends, who talk Disney movies. We talk about all the films of the Walt Disney Company from the very beginning all the way through the latest release in theaters, and we love doing it each and every week with you, our loyal listeners. I'm Ryan Kilpatrick, and along with these folks, we run DisneyFilmProject.com, where we blog about the latest films of the Disney Company the old shorts, the shows that we talk about here, we talk about it all. So make sure, if you haven't already, go check out DisneyFilmProject.com where you can get all the information on Disney films. Joining me, as always, are fine filmic experts. We have Mr. Todd Perlmutter, who is Chief Technical Officer at DisneyDrivenLife.com. He's a blogger over at TouringPlans.com. He works at OnTheGo and MCO.com, and he is also the innovator of Fantasound. Which lasted one film. <laughs> or one theater, really. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. One theater, really, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah, basically, uh, yeah, it's uh, one of those things, you know. You, you time travel, you give some people some ideas, they can't really run with it. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I mean, you can't give away, you know, the, the 2012, 2013 style technology to the 1940s. You just can't do that. So when you start talking them through it, they go, now what do you do with the giant tubes? Yeah, it's, it's a oh, transistor. That's a problem. You know? yeah, yeah. That's a barrier. Also, normally joining us is Miss Brianna Alessio, who you can find over at Adventures of Brie at adventuresofbrie.blogspot.com. She's otherwise disposed today, but she will be joining us again soon. And, of course, our fine producer who makes all of the magic happen. You can find her on Twitter at Cheryl P3. You can find her at about.me slash Cheryl P3. It's Miss Cheryl Perlmutter, everybody. Hello. All is well, Miss Cheryl? We'll see. I haven't, I haven't done any editing lately, so we'll see. <laughs> it all depends on what Todd and I say for the next few, few minutes. Well, since these episodes are William's future, so... <laughs> that we're recording now, so... <laughs> Sounds good. So we are going back in time this week, back to one of the very earliest feature films by the Walt Disney Company, Fantasia, which Yay. is a classic, beloved among many, derided among some, and studied by all. That's what I'm going to go <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's true. It, it is studied by all. Um it's got lots of posts about it. It's, it's very funny because as opposed to its sequel, which we'll get to in our next episode, right? Yes. Is, um, it, it has a lot more stuff written about it than the sequel does. Yeah, this is a very, very, very true statement. When the sequel came out, it was interesting. It was, uh, it's a whole different story, but we'll talk about that um, when we get to our Fantasia 2000 episode. But yes. uh, I think everybody is familiar with the basics of Fantasia, which is – uh, it is Disney short subjects, so 
ranging from uh, as small as just a few minutes all the way up to 20, 25 minute pieces of animation set to classical music. Uh, it's interesting to note, however, that the, the, the film was originally not conceived as a, a feature film. It was The idea was that Disney wanted to create something that was going to make Mickey Mouse popular again. So we're talking in the, in the mid-1930s, right? So Mickey debuted in 1928 with Steamboat Willie, went through all of the black and white period, got color after the Silly Symphonies did. And when we got to the mid-30s, Mickey had waned in popularity because Goofy and Donald Duck were more popular. And frankly, even Pluto was a little more popular in the, in the shorts than Mickey was. If you watch some of the Mickey shorts from the 1930s, you'll see a lot of Pluto in a quote-unquote Mickey Mouse short. Which always drives me nuts. I'm like, I'm watching a Mickey Mouse cartoon. I want to see Mickey Mouse. Fair enough. Yes, I, th- I think that's a reasonable request. Yeah, because I guess all the ones where they were in it together the three of them were just before this right is that yeah, right a lot of the a lot of the ones where they're all together like clock cleaners or lonesome ghosts or those things uh they were all in the mid 1930s like 1934 35 in that range maybe into 36 i think lonesome ghost is 36 which is my favorite one but yeah that Mickey had to rely on the others, basically, at this point in his career. So Walt wanted a comeback for Mickey, and he came up with the idea, or the studio guys did, of setting a Mickey short that would be feature animation quality. Because remember, this is the time when they were working on Snow White and Pinocchio, and he wanted it set to uh, the, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, or to film the tale of The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And make Mickey uh, make it a comeback vehicle for Mickey. Um, the problem being Walt, he spent way more money than he could possibly earn back on a short subject on producing The Sorcerer's Apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how much did uh, he spend? Well, the, there's various estimates, but uh, a lot of folks have said it, it, it was upwards of eight hundred thousand dollars, which we're talking in 19, in the 1930s. Uh, was a lot of money. Now, the original production cost, they say, um, was around 125000 I've seen that number, I've seen the 800000 number bandied about as it got further and further along. But the official quote-unquote was 125000 So remember, people aren't paying to see the short because the short would run before a feature. So the short is probably earning less than a nickel every time somebody goes to see it. So 125000 is difficult to earn a short back, for sure. Let yeah. alone three or four times that much. So yeah. the, the, the only uh, avenue they had to make the money back was to somehow figure out how to fold uh, Mickey's Sorcerer's Apprentice short into a larger feature film. And hence Fantasia was born uh, as the idea grew. Because... Uh, Walt had this relationship with Leopold Stokowski, the conductor from the Philadelphia Orchestra, and he was the one who was doing this, uh, the score for Sorcerer's Apprentice, and so they signed an 18-month contract with him. They said, Stokowski, we would like for you to conduct these new pieces, and we're going to set these to animation and, and, and create a whole new film. And they called it, originally they called it the concert feature. 
So, and this is important to note for people because when we watch Fantasia today on our Blu-rays, which it just came out in Blu-ray last year, is that right? Uh, yeah, last year. Yeah. Uh, uh, or DVD or however you're going to watch it. It is not the intended experience for watching Fantasia. It was not created with that in mind. No, nah, it was to be seen on a screen the size of a uh, football field. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> with a, with a sound system to match the aforementioned Fanta Sound. Fanta Sound. <laughs> yes, which sounds so, like a drink. It does actually. That would be can, kind of cool. Can um, did it, so did it make its money back? It has. How about that? I hear butt in that in that. In that. Yeah, so when it was originally released, so the, the so back to what we were saying, this and that this ties in with what you're asking, Cheryl. And it, it was released in November of 1940, November 13th, uh, in New York, and had these what they called roadshow engagements because the idea behind Fantasia was it was supposed to be just like a classical music concert, right? So that's the idea behind the Fanta sound. It was supposed to sound like there was an orchestra in the theater when you're watching. So kind of like the how they do it these days with the, with, with the movie theaters. They, they show these operas at the movie theater. They charge you 10 bucks, and there you go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the idea was you were supposed to be going to a concert, not okay. going to a movie. Right. right. Which is why it has an intermission in the middle of it, which is an yep. old – even in the 40s was an old carryover from earlier movies when it took them 25 minutes to change the reel anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so the problem was is that it did very, very well in those, in those 13 cities where it did the roadshow, right? It made a lot of money uh, and did very well. When they took it out of those cities and started trying to go to other cities, well, those folks could not install Fanta Sound in their theaters. Uh, they couldn't get people outside of the big markets who were interested in classical music to come to the movie. They didn't know what it was. People, there was a higher-than-usual ticket price for Fantasia, so people wouldn't come to it. So it made good money in the theaters that it ran in. It did not make its money back on its initial release. However, it's been re-released at least nine times since then. Do we know how much the cost of Fanta Sound was? It, it's hard to say because they made a deal with Bell Labs to use it, and it was a, a deal that worked both ways because it helped Bell Labs as well as Disney. Okay, so my question is, The Hobbit and other movies are in, in, in a theater called which is specially called Dolby Atmos. Right. And obviously right now we pay a higher price to go to that theater. And so is, is it the equivalent of, is it say it's equivalent of Dolby Atmos or is, was it more than that? And that's why it wasn't sustained. I, I think it's safe to say that it was the equivalent of the time of a system like Dolby Atmos, where because even in Dolby Atmos, you basically have to go through the theaters and replace all the speakers and rewire the the theater. But theaters of today are designed to have that done to them. Back then, it was like a major overhaul to do something like that. Yeah, big time. I mean, this was the first time anybody had tried to recreate a real sound experience in a theater. Yeah, right. Disney was just a little bit ahead of the times. It wasn't the theaters weren't ready for it. 
and and to sh- to sh- to just to go over what it took to make Fanta Sound work in terms of actual sound, the it took them two months to record all the all the orchestral pieces. Okay, they used thirty three microphones to do it. Okay, there were eight total channels used. The first six were just to record the music. Okay, the seventh was a close mic of all the of all the violins, violas, cellos, basses, woodwinds, brass, and percussion instruments, okay, just so that they had that deeper tone that, a, that the basses and the deeper sounds are all supposed to have because they weren't getting that with just the six channels. Then they had um, – the, sorry, those were the six channels. The, the seventh channel was a mix of all the first six channels together down one pipe. Then the eighth channel was just one that was sitting at the back of the – room just to pick up all the extra ambient sound generated by the music for all the bouncing off walls and ceilings and everything. They, they literally recorded 400,000 feet of sound negative, which is what you used to, the, type of film that you, the type of film that you used to use to record sound back then. That's a lot. That's crazy, yes. Yeah, I mean, it, this was... This was uh, – as much as people will get on to Disney a lot of times, uh, the company now and, and Walt even uh, when in his day for being formulaic and for sticking to fairy tales and for you know basically making stuff that doesn't push boundaries or challenge things. I mean this was a very experimental film for 1940, not just in the technology but in the animation and the style of animation that takes place in a lot of the shorts. Uh, this was this was a case where he went to his team and said, "Push all the boundaries," and they did in in almost every conceivable way, right? I mean, there, like I said, the animation is different, the the technology was different, the techniques they're using are different than they are in any of their any of the shorts or any of the things that you've seen uh, up to this point. So this was a film where they took all kinds of chances, and it didn't pay off initially. But over time, this has become one of Disney's most profitable films because it cost $2.3 million about, let's say, to make. Uh, and it's going to clear probably with the new Blu-ray release and all that sort of stuff, probably well over $100 million for the company over the lifetime. Okay. Yeah. So it was an experiment worth doing. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Do we want to talk about what the intent was by the end of the movie? Like how, uh, you know, basically Disney wanted to release a new version of it every few years. Yes. Yeah, the, Disney wanted to at, at, take the idea was to have a rolling feature because it was a concert, right? The idea was that every year one or two of the numbers in Fantasia would be replaced with a new one. And you would come and see it, and you'd see the one your favorites from before, and you would see the new numbers. And then the next year, there would be you know another new piece, and then the next year, another. The idea was that every five years, there would be an entirely new Fantasia, and it would just continue rolling throughout the road. Yeah. Now, what ended up killing that was World War II, which actually nearly killed the entire studio. Yeah. There was actually a plan book for that. Did you know that? I did it's, not know that. Yeah, it's actually I, – I, it's owned by the uh, Disney Family Museum. It's called Future Fantasias, and Bob Carr is the one who kept the book. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it's uh, – it, I'm not sure if they have it on display or not, but uh, on the Blu-ray, they actually have a feature that talks where she talks about it, and she shows some 
pages from it. And what I find very interesting is they did this book in 1939 just be- and 40 just when they were going to be releasing the movie. And to show you how early they had the ideas that went into Fantasia 2000 is one of the first things they list was to do Rhapsody in Blue. Which, yes. as you know, is, is in Fantasia 2000, which I know we're jumping the gun on, but, you know, you're talking almost, you know, the 60 years apart. Well, actually, I guess Fantasia 2000 started its final production in 1991, right? So, which we'll get to. Yes. But, uh, yes. so, it was, uh, you know, 50 years difference before that got realized. So, that's kind of cool stuff. Yeah, the, the, the eventual creation of Fantasia 2000, honestly, was a, a direct result of the success of Fantasia on VHS, believe it or not. Uh, and Roy Disney talks about that a lot on the, on the DVD set that came out a few years ago, uh, which is it's crazy when you think about how long that, that movie took to create. I mean, this movie, uh, Fantasia, they started work on it in, in the late 1930s, so 1936 was when they started on Sorcerer's Apprentice, but it wasn't until 1937 uh, at the very end of 1937 that they signed the deal with Stokowski and started recording the music in early 1938. So this film took less than two years to produce as opposed to Fantasia 2000 took almost 10. Uh, and as opposed to an animated film these days like A Princess and the Frog or another hand-drawn film uh, it takes about four to five years from story all the way through development. So it, it's crazy how quickly they worked back in those days. Yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what the the structure of this film is. There are several pieces, like we said, set to classical music. Uh, The entirety of the film is narrated by Deems Taylor, who was a music critic that Disney admired at the time and felt like he was going to be the perfect person to introduce the pieces. So in between, before each piece and in between every piece, um, he comes out and sort of introduces what's going to happen and what's going on. Like you said, Todd, there is an intermission. If you have the, the, the current releases, those releases were edited out at some point and now have been put back in on the Blu-ray and DVD releases. Uh, but it's, it is supposed to play like a concert. So it is supposed to be you see the first piece and then they do another number. Uh, then you see the next piece, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. Uh, so that is the, the basic setup for Fantasia. So it, it, is, it is very important for people to understand that when we watch it at home, it is not the way that you are supposed to be viewing this. Uh, because I have had the occasion, I was lucky enough to see this in a theater, uh, actually in an old-time movie palace. Wow. And that experience is way different than when you watch it at home. Uh, when I watch it at home, I'll be honest, I can't actually sit through the entire film just because it's not, as you guys have probably heard, uh, as we've done this show, I'm a big plot and story guy, and there is none of that in Fantasia. Not saying that in a negative way, just that's what I like, and there's none of that there. So it, I have to you know, watch a two- or three-piece chunk of it, turn it off, and then come back to it. Right. But I mean, when this- you're... This is entirely about your senses. It's not about a lot of – you don't need a lot of thought to watch this. Yeah, that's exactly right. But by the same token, it's also one of those movies that you can't just kind of put on on the background and really get much out of it. That is true. Unless you're trying to, like, <laughs> fall asleep. So, so I thought it'd be – we should just say what um, deems <laughs> – 
<laughs> I thought it would be cool to say what uh, Deems Taylor says up front about the movie, right? He says there's three types that are portrayed, right? Yes. He says the first is the kind that tells a definite story where it was intended with purpose. For example, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which he uses as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is the kind that has no plot, but it paints a series of definite pictures. Okay, and those are the ones that are, you know, they have some kind of animated feature that you're watching that isn't just shapes, but it's tell it, you know, but it's just something to watch with the music. And then there's the ones that simply exist for their own sake, and those are the ones where they get really abstract. Yes, and there's all kinds of. It's it's very important to note when you say abstract. This is the first time that Disney did abstract animation, right? They didn't do it in their short. Their short subjects were all, you know, even the silly symphonies, which Fantasia could be seen as a sort of a, a derivation of the silly symphonies. Those were mainly plot driven, like they're, for the most part, they're all they're, they all have a story, a beginning, middle, and end throughout the six seven minute shorts. This is the first time that Disney's actually just taken abstract shapes and colors and forms and created things. Um, and, and so this was a big step for the company, right? Everybody associated Walt Disney with the kind of animation that you saw in the Silly Symphonies and in Snow White, and this was a completely different step for them. Yeah, not not to mention that it opens not as animation. Yes, it is. It is live action shots of the orchestra. Uh, with Deems Taylor saying exactly what you're talking about, Todd, about the different kinds of music and that you know this is a different kind of program, uh, and we see the entire orchestra. It is intended to give you the feel that you are in a concert hall. Uh, and if you watch it in a, like I said, a nice movie theater with a great sound system, that is the feeling that you get. So I can completely understand the, the Fantasound uh, obsession almost that Walt had with making sure that people saw it in the way that he intended but the first piece that's introduced is uh, Toccata in Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach. And this is – if there was a way that I could pick it from thinking back to the 1930s, and as some of you may know, I've watched every piece of animation Disney did from the early 20s. All the, I'm through 1951 right now, but thinking of all the stuff I watched from 1928 through the day Fantasia was released – if I wanted to pick a way to say that this is something different than you've ever seen from Disney before, the animation of Takata and Fugue would be it. Because <laughs> it's nothing. There are no characters. There are no people. There are no sprites. There's no animals. It is abstract patterns of the music and the rhythm of the music through shapes and cloud formations and lines and colors that goes from live action shots of the orchestra illuminated in colors and sort of fades into shots of, you know, elements of the instruments and then into these cloud formations with falling color schemes and things. It is completely abstract. There is no, there's no through line. There's no characters. There's no nothing to follow. Uh, right. It, it basically be- ends where it begins to, right? It goes, it starts with um, Strakowski and it ends on Strakowski. Yes, and so and everything that is between is exactly what you said. I mean, there's no there's no great way to explain it other than it is a completely abstract elements. Yeah, there's lots of curved lines. It there's a there's a whole theme throughout parts of, of Fantasia of these of this cloud 
theme. I mean, to, to cut it in fugue is almost all clouds with, you know, like falling lines and colors and things like that. You see this, you're going to see this again if you, when you watch Fantasia 2000, you know, it's in there. Um, there's, a, there's a similar cloud theme in the Pastoral Symphony, which we'll get to. Um, there's a little bit of it in Rite of Spring, and there's a little bit of it in Night on Bald Mountain. For whatever reason, there's a, there's a sort of a cloud theme to some of the pieces. Uh, in Fantasia 2000, you'll see nature themes as well. But we'll get to that when we get there. Uh, but yeah, it's it, Takata and Fugue is one of the, and it's not that long. It feels long because there's nothing to pull you through it. Uh, but it's not really a long piece. It's just sort of almost a tone setter for the rest of the film. Yeah, there's no tracking element in it, so yep. it's it's not the easiest thing to follow. But other than, but if you follow the music itself, which is the point, yes, you make it through. Exactly. Uh, and the next piece that Stokowski introduces is the Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky. So it, it's interesting to note. So in the introduction to this piece, Deems Taylor says, uh, Tchaikovsky wrote this entire Nutcracker Suite ballet, and it ended up failing miserably, and it's not performed much now, which probably sounds odd to people today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. Cause, right, because we have like every ballet in the world performing it every single year. He also points out that Tchaikovsky hated the Nutcracker. Yes. <laughs> I just find that funny because it's like here we are and it's the work that the guy is most famous for, right? Literally. And because of the way modern society is. but And probably because Deems Taylor, who was one of this, these guys in the 40s through 60s where he was a big person who promoted classical music. You know, and, and kept it alive during a time when it might have otherwise, you know, fallen to the wayside. He is, um, he's telling us this, and it's just, it's humorous all around. Oh, absolutely. Well, and for, for people who don't know, I mean, the, the Nutcracker Suite was, and in 1940, in the 19, late 1930s, nobody did know what it was. Uh, and it's not, it was not Fantasia that brought it back, which was the question I had when he said that. Because I started watching this actually the night after I watched my daughter's ballet company perform the Nutcracker Suite. So that struck me as odd. And so when I started looking at it, it's, it was performed in 1954 in New York and kind of caught on there. Then, it became, then they did a, a TV version of it in 1960 and has since become a big deal every holiday season. Uh, where people come and perform the Nutcracker Suite, but it's it, it is kind of funny to watch the movie now and hear Deems Taylor say, "Oh yeah, well this what this isn't very popular." Tchaikovsky didn't like it. When for all of us, if when you watch the Nutcracker Suite in Fantasia, you're like, "Oh yeah, I hear that music all the time. I've heard that music, you know, hundreds of times by now." Especially um, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, which is what it opens with. I mean, who who doesn't hear that, you know, every every December? these days just walking in and out of Publix yeah <laughs> uh, but so the Nutcracker Suite if you if you aren't familiar with the actual pieces of it um, it what they did with Fantasia is actually take um, the suite itself the 20 minute ballet that that Tchaikovsky has not the story that you're all familiar with so there's no mice fighting Nutcrackers in this piece this is just the ballet of Kind of the dream. Uh, I can't remember the little girl's name. Is it Clara in the Nutcracker? Uh, Asking the wrong person. 
Yeah, whatever. The girl who who has the Nutcracker has this dream about all these different places and the and cultures doing dances for her. Uh, and so, what this piece of Fantasia represents is that piece. Uh, so the first, like I mentioned, is the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, which here is represented by sort of, I wouldn't say Tinkerbell esque fairies, but that's that's kind of what they are. More like the ones that are in the computer animated versions today, but. They, they dancing through the through nature, and as they dance, they leave little trails behind them that sort of sprout things uh, in their wake. Yeah, and they like leave the dew. I like how they paint the dew all over everything too. That's it's kind of a very pretty piece to watch. It is very much so. Uh, then we have the Chinese dance, which is done with mushrooms. This is probably a piece that most people, when you see Fantasia, when you think of Fantasia, a lot of people think of this piece. It's kind of a, a comedic take of this group of mushrooms that are are shaped to look like Chinese uh, dancers. And then a little tiny mushroom who's trying to get into the line and can't. So this it, it kind of adds a little bit of levity because the Sugar Plum Fairy piece and the Takata and Fugue are both very serious. This this adds a little bit of the levity to, the, to things. I always enjoy mushrooms. <laughs> Who doesn't really? Except unless you're allergic. You know, and that's your choice. Or not choice, you know what I'm saying. Uh, and then we have the Dance of the Flutes. Yeah, and I like this one. It's pretty because the way the flowers fall into the water and then they, bec- yep. they like, become like just pirouetting ballerinas along the water until they fall off this waterfall. Yes. Uh, and then we have, we have the Arabian Dance, the Russian Dance, and the Waltz of the Flowers. Then there's the Arabian dance sequence. So, like you said, the, the, the flowers fall off the waterfall, and it kind of transitions under the water. So this, what we get is goldfish with these long tails, and they use the tails as sort of a, a I don't know, veils to dance with. Yeah, I think what that's I was, a safe way to put it. Yeah, what I was really impressed with was the usage and the way that it looks underwater. Right, because again, think 1940. The underwater effect wasn't exactly honed to its to perfection like it is in Finding Nemo or something like that. Uh, it's really impressive the shots of them underwater. They they do swim more like human swimmers than like fish, though. I, yes, I I almost got get the feeling that the pattern is uh, the old uh, you know 1930s pageant films when they used to have the the water scenes. I, I would say that's spot on, yeah, because that's what they do, right? They turn out – they're sort of dancing and doing this uh, Arabian veil dance with their tails throughout the whole thing. And even they use the shadows to make them even appear human. Oh, yeah, I guess they do. I didn't even think about that, but yeah. Yeah, there's a whole sequence where you're looking through like a piece of coral, and all you see is the shadows of the goldfish, and it looks like they're Arabian belly dancers. Which is if you if you go see the Nutcracker uh, in, in in a ballet company, that's what you see when you see the the Arabian dance uh, piece of of this Nutcracker suite. So then we have the the Russian dance piece, which is again we're back to flowers now, but the Russian dance is flowers dancing, and as you probably have heard, the Russian most people have probably heard the Russian dance music as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the old kick dance with the the big hats, and that's what the flowers look like. 
which again it adds a little bit of comedic essence to this piece because the arabian dance sequence and the dance of the flutes is very serious again the russian dance is pretty silly with the flowers doing their dance and then we close it out with the waltz of the flowers which brings it sort of full circle with the fairies coming back and doing the ice skating which again is probably some of the imagery that people think of when they think of fantasia which is the the fairies skating across the ice and leaving these these sort of pixie trails behind them yeah, I, I kind of like how the the fairies transit youth through autumn and winter during this whole part of it. Yeah. Well, it's it's crazy to think about too because you you look at the Nutcracker Suite and the way it works, and then like we we'll talk about this when we get to Fantasia. But when you look at Firebird in the Fantasia 2000 uh, piece, it's a very similar thematic between those two pieces. Yeah we can talk about when we get to that one, but it, it's very interesting. I like the way, it, but as a whole, like I said, this piece is almost 20 minutes long, I think. Um, and it's, it's broken up into these little segments where you're following either the fairies or the flowers or the mushrooms or the, or the fish or, you know, each of these little pieces. So you don't have a chance to necessarily get bored with one piece of the, of the music at a time because the music changes, the scenery changes. So, because of that, this is actually the piece that I like to watch. Like, if I if I sit down to watch, I like to just watch the Nutcracker Suite and then stop before I go on to Sorcerer's Apprentice because it's just one of those things you have to kind of sit and watch and engage with to appreciate. Yeah. I mean, I like the elements, too, because, like, they're not just, like, fairies, like, where they're very specialized and stylized like Tinkerbell is today. Less right. so in Peter Pan, but today's Tinkerbell, right? Is very stylized, you know, much more human, much more specific key features that they developed around that line. These fairies like remind you of different types of insects at different times. Like I like that. Like I, the green ones remind me of uh, dragonflies because they have the double wing and they're long. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I like that. Well, and they use them to different effects. Like we said, like you were saying, the painting of the dew. I really like that too. Um, I, I love watching the ice skating. You know, I, I, I will admit I'm not afraid uh, that I am a fan of figure skating. I like figure skating. So whenever the Winter Olympics comes around, I always watch the figure skating. And I like just the imagery of the, of the fairies skating along, uh, like you said, transforming uh, the seasons is one of my favorite images from Disney film. I really like that. I think yeah. that's that's part of, of Fantasia too. Is right. It's it's not necessarily your emotional connection to the characters. It's the imagery and the way it makes you feel is what you're supposed to take away from this. And that's that's different than a lot of the other Disney films. Yeah, I think the the images there are only there to guide you. It's kind of like meditation. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very good way you're to not, put you're, it. Yeah. You're not being told to say, you know, and give any type of idea. You're just told, you know, this is here for your, for your if you need it. But we kind of want you to see. We we want you to go your own way. Yeah. Yeah. The the one the one that's different than that, obviously, is Sorcerer's Apprentice, which I think everybody's probably seen in some fashion. Uh, which is the music by Paul Dukas based on a poem uh, called Der Zauberlehrling. My German is rusty, so I apologize. I'm glad you uh, tried to pronounce it and not me. 
but it is it is Mickey Mouse in a in his sorcerer uh, apprentice costume, and I think we all know the story. The sorcerer who's anybody want to throw out the sorcerer's name? Oh, it's Yen Sid, but he his name wasn't given at the t- at this time the movie came out. It was given years later. Yes, uh, the sorcerer Yen Sid. Disney factors, in case you couldn't figure that one out. And two words, not one, folks. Correct. Uh, Yen Sid has Mickey fill up a basin with water, basically. Go to to the well, get water, and then fill this basin up. Mickey steals a spell book, puts on the sorcerer's hat, and enchants a broom to do this. And then he falls asleep while the broom is doing it. And the broom ends up filling the entire room with water while Mickey is dreaming about standing on a mountaintop and, you know, making the stars follow his commands, sort of like he does in the Phantasmic attraction, or you can see him doing the same thing in the great movie ride at Hollywood Studios. Yeah. Is this in World of Color, Ryan? This is not in World of Color. There are lots of pieces from Fantasia in World of Color. This is not one of them. Okay. Thank Actually, there's, there's more pieces from Fantasia 2000 in World of Color than from Fantasia. Huh. Okay. Oh. Um, but we'll talk about that when we when we talk about that movie. But uh, unfortunately for Mickey, when he wakes up, the room is flooded, and no matter what he tries to do, even taking an axe and chopping all of the brooms into splinters <laughs> does not help. It's sort of like the Hydra. Chop one down and two will grow in its place is exactly what happens. Yeah. The brooms pop back up. Much to his surprise. Yes, and they keep filling the room with water and until the sorcerer finally arrives and calms the storm and gets Mickey back to work. <laughs> I mean, I, I can see, I can see why Walt gravitated to this as, you know, this is a vehicle to get Mickey back to popularity because it's the design of Mickey. It's important to say they re- completely redesigned him for this short so the Mickey that we know and love today is based off of Fred Moore's design for Mickey Mouse from The Sorcerer's Apprentice. This is not the way he looked in his other shorts at the time. His eyes were different. He was a little more uh, stretched out. He wasn't quite as uh, appealing a character. Uh, yeah, but this is the dinner and stuff like that too. Yep. Yeah, but this this is the Mickey that we know today. They've had they've made minor tweaks here or there, but for the most part, this is the guy. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And because of that, like, I love this short. It's just one of those things, I mean, like, I have I have a Mickey Sorcerer Apprentice doll on my desk at work. Um, I love the fact that Imagineering uses that as their, you know, sort of symbol is the Sorcerer Mickey. Um, I, I will grant you that the big hat at the Hollywood Studios is unfortunate, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Well, that's mostly because they have, they have to cover up Grumman's theater. That's not because of yeah. anything else. I mean, no. Not because of Fantasia. <laughs> right. True. True. Um, I, I wanted to comment that Ducky Williams seems to be really fascinated with Sorcerer Mickey. We've been on two different... I've been on two different um, events that he's been on. And he's done two different re- renditions of Sorcerer Mickey... And even did one without the hat, which was very controversial. For many years, the merchandising department would not allow 
the sorcerer hat to appear with a Mickey who is not also wearing the robe. And one of the very first things that um, Ducky Williams had done statuesque-wise for Disney Vacation Club was present a statue that had a normal Mickey but with this sorcerer's apprentice hat. Ooh. Yeah. That's against the rules. Not anymore. Yeah, it was the one that broke the rule. Yeah. Well, he's kind of like one of the, we we I kind of like to claim as he's still one of the few animators left that you know that's you know has history has definitely he has direct ties to Walt. Um, because he he yeah because you can look up his history he'll tell his story it's a great story right. about how he asked Walt for a job and and then he ended up. You know, eventually, when he grew up, he actually get ended up getting a job, and then then now is in stills in the art department in at um I don't know where where he, where that's at. They say if he's still under under Magic Kingdom or if he's at a different location, or in the studios maybe. Don't know. Yeah. But it's cool that they keep that stuff alive, you know? I mean, like like Joe Grant, who worked on Story for Fantasia, he also worked on Story for Fantasia 2000. I mean, like, having that direct tie between the guy, between Walt and, and the material that's being produced today, I think, is, is one of those things that we're really going to miss in, in years to come as those guys are no longer with us. There's not many of them as it is. But hopefully folks will keep the traditions alive. But so, did, when, let me ask a question: When you guys first saw *Sorcerer's Apprentice*, did you see it in *Fantasia* or outside of *Fantasia*? Outside. I'm not sure. I may I may have seen it Hollywood Studios, maybe my first sighting of it. Yeah, I saw I I saw it for the first time outside of *Fantasia*. It just always amazes me that, as like we said, I mean, it started as. This is, you know, short that's going to, you know, revitalize Mickey. And I feel like it did. It just did it a lot later than Walt intended. <laughs> did they continue any shorts of Mickey as a sorcerer after this, Ryan? No. Never, never, never did it again. Hmm. That's interesting. This is, this is the one and only time that it appears, unless you want to count Mickey's Philhar magic. It's it's crazy. I mean, like, but a lot of people, uh, like my kids, saw it on the Disney Channel before they saw it in the film. Uh, and, and a lot, most people, I would imagine, probably saw Sorcerer's Apprentice, you know, outside the film. It's just it's it's interesting how things come full circle like that, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. So the next piece after Sorcerer's Apprentice, we have a, we have Mickey runs up to Stakowski uh, to to thank him for the uh, for the great. Great work on Sorcerer's Apprentice. And then we go into Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. If you want to talk about ambition in trying to create a animated piece, uh, this one tries to cover the history of the Earth from, its, from the planet's formation all the way through the reign of the dinosaurs. Yes. That's a big task. Yeah, it... And not that it's just a big test, but they kind of set themselves up for, you know, 
like they're really on their own high horse on this one. I, I, I mean, I don't mean to be mean, but it's the whole thing about a totally accurate depiction of science view of the evolution of the planet. And it's like, okay. And then he goes, remember, this is science, not art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and what Todd's quoting is the Deems Taylor introduction, not like some critic writing about it or Disney defending what they did. Like in the film, they say this is completely scientifically accurate, and this is you know all this sort of stuff that makes you go, okay, guys, okay, get along, let's let's move it along. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of though? Now having seen it again, the What's living that? season. See, I was going with Ellen, Ellen's energy adventure. <laughs> the dinosaur sequences, it's funny that you mentioned that, but the dinosaur, so there, the, once we get to the dinosaurs, there's a T-Rex stegosaurus battle that you can see in Ellen's energy adventure these, now. Yes. It was intentionally put there when they built the energy pavilion Lolo's many moons ago. But this this one starts with, like we said, a visual history of the earth it's like the earth uh volcanoes erupting on the earth and uh forming a new landmass and rain coming down to form oceans uh microscopic amoebas in the water and the amoebas starting to crawl out of the water and then we flash forward by the way that bothers me every time i see the movie we have this turtle fish creature that's about to crawl out of the water but we never actually get to see that triumphant moment of him crawling out of the water. Yeah, he makes he does he makes a very big deal about it before the before we see the piece, and it never actually is shown in the piece. Yeah, I I do like like they literally show how the primordial soup gets mixed. Yes, yes, right. They do. I mean, I mean, they really go over. I mean, it and it's not like it's bad. Okay, don't get me wrong. This is this is the longest piece. If any people complain about any piece between both movies. It's this one because it just goes on and on and on. Yes, it does. To be fair, it's got to be like, what, 18 minutes long, something like that? Yes, it's just a hair longer than the Nutcracker Suite. But like we said, the difference is Nutcracker Suite is broken up into these little chunks where everything changes so often, including the music, that you don't really notice that it's a longer piece. This this one feels long. You're right, Nutcracker doesn't feel long. Um, it, but like I said, the the whole that lava eruption mixing with the ocean, mixing back in, and everything becomes a soup, and then all the critters are born. It's like they do it, folks. Yeah, they they go pretty wild, and they had originally intended to go past the reign of the dinosaurs into the evolution of man, but they were actually afraid of you know the creationists and the people who uh, you don't believe in in evolution and all those sorts of things. They don't believe in the science of it, and that is part of the reason for that big uh, introduction by Deems Taylor. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That must have been, at that point in time, I mean, it's, it's crazy now. I can't believe what, what it must have been back then. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a big deal, but that's, that's part of the reason for the whole, you know, this is science, this is what it is, that sort of a thing. That's part of the reason for that. Huh. Uh, but we go from that primordial ooze and the critters and all that sort of stuff into the dinosaurs. So we see all the dinosaurs in their habitats. Um, And this is what I felt like was the best, most realistic animation in the entire piece, right? Not all of it's meant to be realistic. The Nutcracker Suite is meant to be cartoony. 
Takata and Fugue is meant to be abstract. Sorcerer's Apprentice is meant to be a Mickey cartoon. This is trying to emulate real life, at least the dinosaur sequences. And I feel like they did a very good job of it. I mean, as best they could do in 1939. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like a photograph like some of the computer animated films today, but it looks pretty darn good. Yeah. The, the extinction part of it goes on a bit much, though, because they are dying for a very long time. Yeah. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. Those poor dinosaurs. I was crying for them at that point. I was where I was with. I was like, free with those tissues. Yeah, I mean the pacing of of the of Fantasia is very difficult. Like we've been talking about, like Takata and Fugue is a very nice piece, and then Nutcracker Suite, but. Then you get Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is a short, you know, seven-minute fun little cartoon. Then you go into Rite of Spring, and it's this, like you're saying, this long, long piece that it's very hard to stick with. I mean, for me, it's very difficult to watch the whole thing of Rite of Spring and pay attention to it completely. Now, as I said, when you're in a theater, it's a different story. The whole movie takes on a different character, but... Put some milk duds in my hand and my story might be different. <laughs> You can always but, close your eyes and go with the music. That's that. That's gonna be my statement to you. You can always, again, they, they weren't telling you you had to watch. That's right. That's true. That's so, true. So again, you could always just close your eyes and go make your own story. <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. But I very can understand true. why the next piece is the intermission. Yes, you need a break after Rite of Spring. I mean, it's just. It's one of those things, like you said, and it's deep, right? You're talking about the origins of life on the planet trying to be covered in 18 minutes in a Disney film. It just doesn't seem to fit with everything else. You know what I mean? Like, it, if you were to ask me the one piece that's out of place in this, that's it. Yeah, it's usually the one where it, it's funny. Like, I have sometimes I've sat down to watch this and people have been with me and they said, can we skip over that one? <laughs> <laughs> I can completely understand that. But like you said, the next piece is the intermission. So if you have the current versions, uh, there's an inter- intermission where it literally shows intermission and the, t- and the title card of Fantasia comes back up. Then they come back and there's a, the orchestra starts playing a little bit of an improvised sort of jazz type music, just sort of playing around warming up. And Deems Taylor then does a little piece that they call Meet the Soundtrack, which is basically they take the, a, a line down the middle of the film and show what the different instruments look like when they play them, and it changes into different shapes or colors based on the sounds that are played. And it's yeah, a fun enjoyed little, that. Yeah. This has also become very, very classic in movies to, that do something like this because now they all do that line down the center with the waveform breaking out from the line. Very popular nowadays. You know – for that sort of thing. It it just really didn't occur before this point. Yeah. It was it was a diff- it, it, this is something that like you said has now been copied by everybody. Yeah. So before Ryan talks about this next scene, um if you have are you if you are a young child or if you have young children, um we may be talking about inappropriate stuff. Um cover your this, eyes. Just yes. let's go forward a little bit and we'll be back to you. Don't look at this portion of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah. warning people that we're discuss- we might be discussing anatomy. That's all I'm doing. 
So what Cheryl's talking about, I mean, we open uh, the Pastoral Symphony with these cupids, which are completely naked little babies flying around. Uh, and they then open things up to uh, the centaur bathing pool. And it's the female centaurs, and they are in the bathing pool, and they are also naked. So it's, it's, they don't sort of gloss over any of that in, the, in the, the film. So if you have young kids or something, they may kind of giggle and point and do sorts of things. So just be aware of that if you're going to show your kids this movie. Um, my, my kids have seen it a couple of times and th- they've never really reacted to it too much, but everybody's different. So yeah, it's not blatant. It's just there. Yeah, exactly. That That's probably the, the best way to put it. Um, but something to be aware of if you haven't seen Fantasia in a while or, uh, haven't seen it before at all, which I'm hoping most of you have, but we have the female centaurs meet up with the male centaurs and they try to make a, a match, uh, between the cupids are trying to match up the two. And that's what have, cupids do. That's right. It's it's pretty funny too because they have, uh, you know, all the different. It, you can tell which ones are going to match up because all the centaurs are not flesh colored, right? There's blue ones and orange ones and <laughs> all kinds of different colors, and so they match up with the same color on the other side, for the most part. Yeah, I think the cupids were looking for color coordinated centaurs. Maybe that could be, you know. That's what I think. <laughs> then they all so, get drunk. Yes, and then the god of wine, Bacchus, comes in and starts sloshing wine everywhere. <laughs> uh, Bacchus is hilarious. I love Bacchus. He's ride. He's a huge fat man and rides in on this tiny little donkey. Donkey unicorn. Yes. Which reminds me of the donkey from Saludos Amigos. Oh, from the uh, from the flying gauchito. Yes. Yes. Yes, I like the flying gauchito. Well, you know that's only a few years after this, so it wouldn't surprise me if they reused some of the design. I hadn't thought of that, but now I'm going to go watch Saludos Amigos again. You do that like every week. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. Uh, but and then uh, amongst all the revelry, then Zeus interrupts things and starts throwing lightning bolts down at everybody, because that's what Zeus does. Throws frankly. them bolts. Yep. And we see Vulcan, you know, pounding his bolts on the on the forge, and then Zeus kind of grabs them and throws them down and interrupts all the fun. I did want to say I thought I liked how this Zeus looked a lot like the Zeus from Hercules. That's a really good point, Cheryl. Yes, Cheryl it does. Point, yeah, you could. Again, this is going back. I mean, even in Fantasia two thousand, there's things that are in Fantasia two thousand, and and this too that are just you could see elements of things carried forward into animation or calling back in the case of two thousand. It's very common. By the way, can I say that? Okay, we're doing Greek myths here. I know that. I know that Deems there calls him Vulcan, but if we're Greek, it would be Hephaestus. Yes, it would. And if we were Norse, it would be Thor. It would be Thor (laughs) throwing thunderbolts. That's right. Charles right. There we go. There's Avengers. (laughs) I like it. I like it. But yeah, Pastoral Symphony, and it's interesting because like we, the flow on this one is is very strange because this is a very funny, cute short. As is the next piece, Dance of the Hours. So Dance of the Hours is probably, the uh, again, when people think of, you know, what is Fantasia, 
I, almost anyone, when you talk to people about Fantasia, they go, oh, is that the one with the ballet hippos? Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> and it's Dance of the Hours. It is, uh, it's four sections. There are ostriches in the first section, and they're meant to represent different parts of the day, right? So the ostriches are the morning. The hippos are the afternoon. Then we have elephants representing the evening, and we have alligators coming together with the hippos to represent night. I'm going to raise my hand. Was it me, or was anyone else kept expecting the, the music to change, just like the great movie ride does? I was like, wait, why is that my music? Why is this, new, why is this old track we're hearing? It's yeah. like, <laughs> oh, this is the track we're supposed to be hearing? Just yes. because, because this is not the great movie ride. It is not. Yeah. I did. I had that instance. Um, I, not this time when I watched it, but last time after, like, so I'd just been to Disney and came back, and yeah, I was expecting the uh, the dance of the hour sequence. I was expecting it to change into clips from other movies. <laughs> <laughs> also, for derivative uh, artwork, is this alligator the way they're the way they're all al- animated here? Kind of, sort of became the way alligators were animated by everybody at that point in time. Yes. I don't know why. I mean, maybe no one else had ever seen an alligator. I'm not really sure. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I don't think people were doing as much animation of different types of characters as Disney at this time, right? So anyone – and you'll find this, right, if you do any study on Fantasia. Anyone who went on to be anyone in animation – will cite Fantasia as one of those things that sort of blew their minds. I mean, all the people who work in Disney feature animation today will can tell you about, you know, Fantasia and what they the first time they saw it and all the different things that they liked about it and how it really changed them. So, I can imagine this it was similar was true at the time of, you know, people going to see the the Gators. I mean, it's not like you said, it's not just the Gators. There's all kinds of things that people take from the, from this film. That they that we see today and probably don't realize that it came from Fantasia. But the the dance of the hours is meant to be this, like I said, this comic ballet. It is supposed to be funny. So matching it up with the pastoral symphony, you know, it plays really well. That flows well because the pastoral symphony, while it's funny, it's not quite as completely humorous. Whereas Dance of Hours goes into almost complete comedy the whole time, right? Because it's silly ostriches dancing and hippos and elephants, et cetera, et cetera. And then we get to the last piece, which is Night on Bald Mountain, which is completely serious. It's a huge tonal shift from Dance of the Hours because, again, this is one where we get Chernabog, who we see in lots of different disney things today when you look at like anything that's disney villains you're gonna see chernabog in it yeah and it's chernabog isn't even a character that they made up i mean chernabog is a real mythological creature yes well not uh, well i shouldn't say real but you know what i mean yes (laughs) he existed previously yes also it's not actually bald mountain right it's actually bear mountain they just changed it to bald mountain in the U.S. for whatever reason, mm-hmm. right? And that's because the bald is the literal translation, but what they mean by bare mountain is they mean a mountain that has nothing on it. It's just stone-faced. 
Interesting. Yeah, it's it just boggles my mind though. Who thought that we should go from cute ostriches dancing to a mountain evil spirit raising restless souls from the dead? Right, because we have Chernobog unfolding himself from the mountain and he's summoning all the creatures, uh, the ghosts up. Sort of like if you've been to the Haunted Mansion and you see the ghosts flying away as you exit the building and go into the graveyard. I mean, that's what it looks like. And you, you see him playing with all the little devils and those sorts of things. And it's it's the church bells that actually drive him away. The church bells and the light you know, drive him back to fold himself back into the mountain. And then it transitions into Ave Maria. And it's interesting because it goes directly from this literal Night of Bald Mountain piece and sort of transitions almost full circle back to more abstract because we see with Ave Maria, we see this group of people carrying candles basically with these lights. And as they go past a certain point, then it goes much more into abstraction again, sort of like Takata and Fugue from the beginning. Yeah. I, I do like too how they how they do the, they start the transition just by ringing the church bell, which is enough to make Chernobog cringe and slink away. Yeah. Which, I, if I knew it was that easy to you know to defeat villains, that's that's what I would do. Anytime. I'd be walking around with a bell all the time. Yeah, exactly. That's how Santa gets around. Maybe. By ringing a bell, it's on the it's on the sleigh. <laughs> he wards evil off with his sleigh bells. I didn't even think about that. There you go. Wow. We unlock the secrets of the universe, people. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, so it, that's that's all the pieces we've we've yeah. talked about each of the pieces. With, with Bald Mountain, do you think that? Some of that imagery is what they're trying to do when you like enter the graveyard in the haunted mansion. I think so. I mean, like it's it's the same look, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think I don't know if they're trying to evoke Bald Mountain or if they're just if they saw the movie and said, you know, hey, that's a cool image. Let's try to emulate that. But it's so similar. I have to think there's some connection there. That's my own, that's that's all I can tell you. I don't know. I I've read extensively on both pieces and have never found anybody to say there was, but it's so similar. I can't imagine there wasn't. Yeah. But that's just me. So which of which of these was your favorite? Which which of the seven pieces? I'll I'll leave meet the soundtrack out unless that was your favorite. But which of the seven pieces was you guys favorite? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with Sorcerer Mickey. Mickey's Sorcerer's def- Apprentice? Yeah, Sorcerer, Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mickey's definitely a favorite. Alright. I, I think they should have maybe reordered... I think now after we were speaking, they should have reordered it. Maybe put Mickey... Put the hippos, then put Mickey, then put Chernabog. That may have been better ordering. <laughs> Alright. Yeah, I never thought of... I wonder why they pick the order that they did. There's not like a specific rhyme or reason for it. Yeah, I don't I don't really know. I mean, I know um in and we'll talk about it in the sequel that they they did pick a specific order for for flow and I think it it works very well. With this, I don't I'm not really sure. You know, I know that they listen to all the pieces extensively, but I agree with you, Cheryl. Like I think 
if they had um, somehow figured out another way to intersperse things, like maybe ha- moving Pastoral Symphony up uh, or or something, it just the the flow, especially in the first half um, before the intermission, is is a little weird. But Todd, what was your favorite? Oh, I like Dance of the Hours. You want to know why? Yes, I do. It's because of the alligator. Because when I was growing up, I had this book called The Friendly Alligator. And it was one of those books where your parents would buy them and they put your name in the book. And the alligator looks just like the princely alligator that comes up to save the hippo and then dance with the hippo. Oh, cool. So that's why. Just reminds me of that. I have to go with uh, Pastoral Symphony as my favorite. Because I like Bacchus, especially. Yeah. But but I also enjoy the, the centaurs and the little the, the dance that they do with the Cupid and, and all those sorts of things. Do you miss Sunflower? I, I don't miss Sunflower because I've never seen Sunflower. You can actually uh, – it's the version of the symphony is on YouTube that has her in it. Oh, interesting. So yes. inform, inform the folks what we're talking about. There is a um, – slightly considered racially derogatory um, female centaur that is um, black, that is uh, waiting on the other centaurs, lady, female centaurs. And it's, she's very highly characterized, which was common back then in animation, as we've discussed before. And it was pulled in future uh, versions because once Disney hit the 70s, they started cleaning stuff like that up so you never saw it again. Yeah, you find you find a few things like that, you know, throughout the history of Disney of things that they've had to cut out in shorts or, or other things like that, or you know, even shorts that they don't release. Even but movies that's like one Song of, of the South. Yeah, even like all of Song of the South. Yes. Yeah. So as as times change, so do uh, what what Disney can release. Yeah. But yeah, it, like we said, Fantasia is one of those movies that it. It created this this buzz and that sort of thing, but it didn't catch on with the general public, and I honestly don't know if it yet has. Right, I don't know many people who sit down in their living rooms and watch Fantasia, even though when it was released on VHS, as we said, it made a lot of money. <laughs> it, like you said, I mean, granted, like I watched the whole thing through for the podcast. So, along with Cheryl, but a lot of people are just used to watching the individual pieces and not the whole. Yes, you know, because because that's how it's presented. Going back to you know old the old Disney, you know, um, TV show, and then back when on Disney Channel and on and on on forward. So, yeah. And that's that's the way that I mean I remember when the Disney Channel was in its heyday back in the 1980s. Man, I mean that was you you saw a piece from Fantasia, shortened versions of them all the time. Uh, but it's interesting that that so many people own it, and yet I would guess, and we don't know this for sure, but that that so few people actually sit and watch the whole thing. Because it's 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 a two hour film, which honestly is very long for a Disney film as well. Right, yeah. most animated films are about an hour and a half, and you know the early ones like Snow White or Pinocchio are even shorter than that. 
Well, but like I said, those would be the only two earlier ones, right? <laughs> yes, the only two earlier than this one. <laughs> or was Dumbo? Uh, I think Dumbo might have been. No, this is a, this is the third movie. This is the third. Okay, yeah. Dumbo is right after this. That's right. Yeah, comes out in, in 1941. So, or December December sixth. That's right because it came out right. Uh, got pushed off the covers of of the uh, Time magazine because of Pearl Harbor. There we go. All right, so uh, that is our look at uh, Fantasia. So it's this is one of those that we talked about for a long time about doing because it's hard to talk about because there's no there's no plot there's no there's no you know like nuances to discuss. So uh, hopefully you guys feel like we did it justice. I think this is one that we can all say um, any Disney fan needs to watch it. And even if you can't sit through the whole thing in one sitting, you need to see each of the individual pieces and allow it to. Uh, sort of get into your head and think about it. Uh, I will say, as someone who's seen it in a theater, you if you have that opportunity, you definitely need to take it. Especially with modern sound systems or, or any of those things. I mean, it's, it's one of those things you have to go try uh, and see because it's a completely different experience and it is the way that it was intended to be seen. So shall we rate Fantasia? Sure. All right, Cheryl, you want to take a crack at it? I'll go with three. I I, I really think it's great. I think the parts are great. I, th- I love the music. Um, I think that Disney should find a way of doing something like this, modern, maybe using Pixar characters. I mean, I know we have the little Einsteins, yes, but it's not the same. It's not. It's not, you know... And I know we have the you know, the the series do opera, but I really think we need to, you know, make sure that classical music isn't something that's lost. Um, kind of like we've said during Mr. Holland's opus, you know, we kind of want to make sure we we protect stuff. So, um, I really think that Disney should find a way of modernizing this and show it. Maybe start doing shorts in front, you know, take take classical music to do a short in front of a Pixar movie and start introducing it that way and see what happens. I think that would be a great statement for Disney to do. And it also would help keep the idea of Fantasia alive. Fair cool. Todd, what do you think? Um, I am also going to go with a three. I mean, it's I I don't dislike it, but I think that, like you said, it's it's hard to sit through and be through, and I think that kind of detracts from the rating a little bit. Not that it's that the pieces are bad, just it's not an easy film. Correct. Yeah. Which is why, for me, like I have to give it a two, which I know is horrible, but. Fantasia as a film for me just doesn't work. I can't, it's very difficult for me to watch. Um, I will give certain individual pieces a five or certain individual pieces, you know, higher than that. Or, well, not higher than five, but you know what I'm saying. Like, certain pieces I'll give a five, some I'll give a, a two, whatever. But it's, as a film, it just doesn't hold together. The pacing is off. Um, it's it's just, like we've been saying, difficult to watch from beginning to end. So if I have to rate the film as a whole, I would have to give it a two. Uh, but 
like I said, I still watch it very often. Just I have to watch it in pieces. So fair enough. All right, so that is our look at Fantasia. If you want to argue with us and say, hey, Fantasia is an all-time classic. It should get a five. Uh, well, please go do so. Go over to DisneyFilmProject.com, and you can leave a, a note on the show notes there, or you can find us on Facebook, Disney Film Project, or you can find us over on Twitter, at DizFilmProject, and you can let us know what you think. Uh, until next week, where we, we will talk about the sequel, Fantasia 2000. Uh, we will see you later, folks. 